Hey everybody, you're very welcome to Season 2 and Episode 16 of the Asking for a Parent Podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Ochter, and it's a great pleasure to get an opportunity to come and chat to you again. Uh, we've got a great listeners episode this week. We, their listeners' questions are going to be done by someone who's appeared on the podcast before, and we've got a lot of interest around that episode that she was on, and we have had lots of queries about how she's been doing since. And so this week's listeners' questions episode, I'll be joined by my sister, Eleanor Birmingham, uh, as you know, who has two autistic children, and you know we're just really interested to hear how she's been getting on. Obviously. Children with additional educational needs have been high in the, the media agenda over the last number of months. So we're going to ask Eleanor about her personal journey over the last number of very difficult months for anyone out there who has a child with additional needs. But before we get into that, I do want to thank everybody for their phenomenal feedback around our uh, Young People's Voices episodes last week. It, was, uh, it smashed all the records uh, in terms of downloads and people were just really interested in hearing what young people had to say and as you know that's a first of a three-part series so the first episode had a kind of a focus on primary school the next episode it'll be out next week uh when we finish editing it as you can imagine it's a very tricky process because there's a lot of voices on there we'll focus on secondary school children and then the last installment will be that 18 to 25 group the young adults or, or older children if you want to look at it that way and we'll get an insight into their experiences over the last 12 months. But I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for listening, downloading and sharing the last episode. Uh, I know it was really important to me to give young people a platform to be heard and just delighted that people showed an interest in it and that it struck a few chords in people, which is exactly what it was supposed to do. And maybe as parents, it has helped us to better understand what our children are going through and maybe helped us to position ourselves in a better way to help them. But that was great. So that was the Young Person's Voices episode last week. That's fantastic. And I hope everyone's doing okay. The, the weather seems a little bit nicer. We've had a little bit of sunshine and vitamins in our system that has helped us to kind of embrace some of the changes coming down the line. We're approaching summer. There does seem to be some lift in the, the hope levels across the country. So I hope you're feeling that. And if you're not, I wouldn't worry about it either because these are still very, very challenging times. And as I say, we on the podcast here will be with you until things start to lift a little bit again. And we hope you're finding us a helpful companion through what is a really challenging year. But anyway, I'll let you listen on to the next episode uh, with Eleanor Birmingham and hope you're doing okay. Anyway, on to today's guest, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce you to my guest on this week's Listener's Questions episode, which is my sister, Eleanor Birmingham. And I just want to clear something up for a lot of confusion for some of the uh, listeners over the, the feedback I've been getting. I have two sisters uh, and they're different people because it was some query, Eleanor, about the last time you were on, you had a very colorful and interesting story and then we had Catherine of course our other sister on in between that and everyone was wondering why you were so quiet the second time around how <laughs> you never mentioned it so I had to clarify that these, these are I have two different sisters and, and I'm the chatterbox <laughs> Catherine who we both love and and, and care for doesn't have two children with autism uh, with Eleanor who's with us today does and I have to say Eleanor the response we got from your episode. The reason I have you back is to use a phrase back by popular demand because there's <laughs> been your episode was phenomenally well received. It's still one of the most listened to episodes of the whole series. 
And considering that you're competing with celebrities, uh, that's some achievement. I also have gotten such a, a response from, uh, I suppose, the, if I can call it the autism community, from people who, who share that struggle, who really got an awful lot out of the, the episode that you did in terms of resilience and strength and perspective and acceptance. There was so much in it. And anyone who hasn't heard it, I would strongly recommend you go back and listen to it. But for someone who's maybe just tuning in at season two, uh, I'll ask you to just give us a, a, a thumbnail sketch of your circumstances. And, uh, and as again, on behalf of the listeners, I'm going to have to ask how you've been since and for you to fill us in on any developments with you. But we last saw you in December. Um, that's right. It was coming up to the Christmas holidays. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so can you tell us a little bit about your own circumstances, uh, the challenges that you face, and then maybe move on to how things have been since December? Well, Coleman, just to say, I started the last podcast with the words when you asked me how I was. My children are in school. And for me, that that is whether I'm things are good for me or things are really hard. And thank God today I can say my children are in school. And it's like the, the it's like I, I just say those words with such joy and such relief. Um, I adore them. Don't get me wrong, but they are in school. And there hasn't been a lot of time, sadly, since I spoke to you last and now that I have been able to say those words. So it is with great relief. And uh, I suppose uh, <laughs> um, hope and and energy and uh, joy that I can say that. But it hasn't been easy to get them back. I have two little boys, basically. And um, well, the older one is not so little anymore. He's 14 in May. And he has severe autism and learning disabilities. He's nonverbal and he would have a lot of challenging behavior. And so he would be kind of the whole, I always, and I'll say it the last time and I'll just quickly say it again. I always say autism is like a meal. So you can have a little starter or a main course or, you know, a dessert. You can have various degrees of autism. It's a huge spectrum and it's very confusing for people who don't, know that or don't understand that so Mikey my oldest boy would have the whole starter main course dessert Irish coffee everything he's the whole kit and caboodle and um, a lot of problems and my second little boy Dara who is now nine also has a diagnosis of autism but he wouldn't be a much different child to Mikey He'd have an awful lot less of this of challenges. He's verbal and he's able to learn. His he doesn't really have much of a learning disability, but he does also have a lot of controlling behaviors, a lot of anxiety, and two together in a house is very difficult because they they rub each other off the wrong way. One is noisy, one hates noise, one is messy, one loves everything to be really neat and tidy. So we have nightmares here and like it's a chaotic, crazy house. And I'm a single parent. My husband came out when I was 10 years married, when my dad was probably about one or two as being gay, which was also another shock and another, I suppose, thing to deal with. And also it's very difficult to have children with autism, even in a family 
with a parent, two parents there. And it's particularly difficult for me on my own as they're getting older and bigger and stronger and I'm getting older, <laughs> I'm getting older and we less strong. As I definitely feel my energy levels and everything. I'm coming to 50 this year. I'm actually staying 49 because I feel that this year has been such a complete waste and such a complete non-entity that I'm actually not counting it. I'm going to stick 49 and then maybe next year when everything reopens again, I might become 50 because I don't think it's fair to add a year to my age, even though I've probably aged 10 dealing with the children who've been off for the time for the for the practically most of it but that's my story that's where I am I have I live in Newcastle in County Dublin I have a lovely ex-partner who lives not too far away with his with his partner long-term partner and they are very very good and involved with the boys take them every Friday evening but most of the time I'm here on my own with the boys. I do have home support, which is really good and helpful. And I do get respite, but I've had very, very little respite throughout COVID and very, very little school. So both the school and the respite would be really essential for Mikey's mental health, well-being, behavior, everything. And the difference in him in the this time this year and this time last year is huge. And that's not not pardon the pun but he is now in large men's clothes I had to buy him large men's clothes and that has to do with the sitting around eating he's on a lot of antipsychotic medication for his behavior and a side effect of that is this eating 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 so he has done very little in the line of exercise or anything and very much in the line of eating he gets very aggressive if I'm if I'm not giving him the food so he has got so big and he has got so much more difficult physically to manage and a lot of his skills that he would learn in school would be life skills and I've seen a lot of regress self-care and toileting and I've seen a lot of a lot of regression and this on for a bit off for a bit in out in out has been really detrimental for him also for Dara but I would see mostly Mikey has been very badly affected by it to be honest and- And that's something, Eleanor, we've heard a lot about over the last 12 months about the impact of the COVID closures on families with additional needs and the regression and the the challenge of, you know, school is way more than just school for these children. It's almost, um, as you say, the life skills element. There's almost a health side to it, if I can say that as much. It's really, well, for Mikey now, definitely, it's not academia. It's not academics. I mean, he can't speak. He wouldn't, like, he can't say his name. So he's not going to be doing academic stuff. Most of the stuff that he would be doing would be life skills and how to behave and how to wait. He goes to a fabulous school. We're really lucky. We have an excellent behavior analyst and really good staff and it's he needs to be there because he hasn't got anything else in his life. People don't understand that children with severe autism are so isolated. They don't have friends. They don't have play dates. They don't have football to, to go to. They don't have like other occupations that children, typical children do outside of school. They literally have, in a lot of cases, just school and then their families and then usually grandparents and things like that. And throughout COVID, there hasn't been that 
visiting family there hasn't and I've said to you before because of Mikey's lunging and the back of the car and aggression sometimes towards me I have a perspex screen in my car but I can't take the two children together in the car so if I'm here for a couple of days I'm stuck in this house with them for 24 7 and he's fed up Jarrah's fed up there's iPads going constantly. There's Mr. T- there's Mr. Tumble going constantly. I'm trying to do it. Was trying to do but at the remote learning and the homework with Jara. It's just it's it's impossible. Mikey can't do remote learning, and it's it, it's not even something that is you know it, it's not possible to teach those skills or to do what he needs to do. Also, things like his occupational therapy stopped, and that was really good for him. He's a very sensory seeking child and the OT was really good. And as I say, even going off for his respite was fabulous. We've had little bits of that, but nothing like what he needs and nothing like what he requires. And I'm not alone when I'm saying that for anybody with the severely autistic children, you don't have the same social life. You can't go to a restaurant or a shop or I couldn't even bring him into a chemist or anything if I needed something. I'd have to wait till somebody came here, you know. So it's very, very tough. And as I say, the COVID has made it extra tough. Now, the first lockdown I found very tough, being honest. But I'm, I kind of think there was a bit of novelty about the first lockdown and there was kind of a bit of an unreality about it. And I think we didn't realize how long this was going to go on. And we kind of went into it, I suppose, you know, fairly uh, well, I went into it fairly kind of going, okay, this is not going to take this will be over. This can't be going on forever. And I think the second one by the January, we were so jaded with it. The weather was so gloomy and everybody's mood, the children's moods, my own mood, everybody's mood like took a dip and I would call the word that I was weary and jaded from it because it was monotonously and the days were cold and there wasn't so much chance to go out and like you'd call someone on the phone like for a bit of crack and the whole conversation is how much weight have you put on I've put on more weight than you. No, my definitely have put on. No, I'm I'm the same weight as I was when I had my child. I'm heavier than I was. This is my conversations. And then you're like, what did your child break? Oh, mine broke the telly or mine broke this. Because um, we were, they're notorious for breaking things, the children with autism. Oh, mine flung at this. And this went down the toilet or somebody puked on an iPad or, oh, God, what? where is open to fix screens? And then you go on to the whole thing of, oh my God, is there any chance when, what, any words, what's the figure, what's the numbers? And then you're like, what did you eat? What are you having for your dinner? And then what, is there anything on Netflix? Any news? No. Any news with you? No. Mine fell is terrible. My fell is terrible. My child is so upset. My child is so this. And that's my, even when you speak to people of typical children, they're like, they're in the bed all day. They're, they don't see their friends. They're, you know, everybody was at that kind of, stage in January where it was like okay and it looked like our schools I said the there was going to be that prolonged extension of no more no school and I really believed the first time that that would never happen again Coleman because Ireland is the only country in the developed world that ever closed special schools 
the amount of kids in special schools only makes up 2% of the general population of schools. So it's a tiny number. And most of those classes are six per class. And during COVID, when we went back originally, they were actually put into pods of three. And the work that the schools did to prepare the safety that was in place, the whole, even the bus arriving in the morning, the taxi driver was all screened up and gloves and everything was so like safe. And there wasn't even a sheet of paper coming home. Everything was done by email. Just couldn't be, they couldn't have done any more. There was air purifiers brought in. There was new doors put in so that they could come in and out. And it really, I said, this will never close again because it is really, there'd be no case in the school. Everybody, it'll never happen again. And then suddenly, wham, we're there back again in January. I had felt the government and the department and everybody had kind of realized, listen, we shouldn't have done that because of the problems that people had experienced and were talking about. But in fact, we were there facing again into this unknown length of time of closure. So we got together and it's always the parents getting together, Coleman, to get anything done in this country. You, as all your guests who have special needs children, will talk to you about the battling and the fighting and the mustering up of the energy that you have to, when you feel you cannot give any more, you then have to settle, start into this complete battle to get what your child needs so we formed a group well I didn't form the group I joined the group but it was called Open Our Special Schools Ireland and it was really the best thing we ever could have done it was a group of parents whose who had special needs children both in units attached to mainstream schools and also which are called special classes and also in special schools and we got together very quickly up to 900 people we bombarded stalked all the tds we wrote letters we put our lives our stories our You know, it's not easy to talk about the difficulties of your child's behavior. It's not easy to talk about the issues that your child has. But we were forced to put it on the line. We were forced to come out and speak out and say things that maybe we don't really want people to. You know, I'm I'm very open, but there's still things I'm very protective of Mikey. And I don't like to speak and say he did this, he did that. But I, I have to do it because if I don't do it, nobody will listen. And we, there was 950 parents. We mobilized really quickly. And within two weeks, there was 300 legal letters gone to the unions and the department and a date set for high court about our children's right to, constitutional right to education was not being fulfilled. And that is really what pushed the schools to go back because we were around the middle, I think the 19th of January, and we were told you're going back tomorrow or the next day. And I remember taking out the school bags and kind of doing a little, oh, please God, please God. And Mikey saw the school bag and he kept handing it to me because I had to hide it and um, the coat. And the next thing we get this, no, at the last minute, the unions can't agree. It's not opening. And that happened not once, but twice. And that really, that hope, that feeling, oh my God, it's over, it's it's over. And then suddenly, no, it's not, is actually worse than it not, not being given that hope because you just feel like we're getting somewhere, we're getting somewhere and we're not. And meanwhile, you're there with your child regressing and you're watching this. And as I say, there is only in the country 124 special schools and 18,000 children. 
And I, it's not a huge number. And there's 18,000 children school in, in special education. And I just feel it's, it was re- ridiculous, the fight we had to put up. And I, I, I actually feel so sorry for typical children as well. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's only about our kids. It's all children. But the need and the requirement for the children like Mikey, even in comparison to my second son, Dara, is so it's just vitally important. So he went back in February every second day. Like he was literally back two days and then it was a midterm break. And then they went back another two days. And then I think it was Patrick's day. Like it was very scatty and that was really confusing for him with sleep patterns and everything like that. Then we had the Easter holidays and now we're back again. And I've just realized that one of them is off for a week in May And one of them is off for a week in June. So I can't even have a combined dreadful week that I'll have to endure because I have one week with one and then another week with another. And then we've the summer holidays looming. So yeah, the whole thing of the the school closures has had, I do think of you, which are four to seven. There's been a couple of days here now where I was, yeah, I was nipping on the nine, up to the nine going, I'm so frustrated with this. This is ridiculous. This should not be happening. It's so wrong. I mean, I, I would really wish that they had put the teachers and special needs teachers, especially and SNAs higher up on the vaccination list because like my home support workers and that who've never let me down have been here from the whole way through, even when the very beginning, when they weren't vaccinated, they're all vaccinated. And there's not much difference in the amount of physical contact they would have with the child that can't do anything for himself than an SNA or a special needs teacher would have because they can't social distance. So I'm disappointed in that. I think that should be something that was prioritised, especially because the numbers are so low. It wouldn't take a lot to vaccinate the number of staff that are in the special schools, if that makes sense. So, yeah, they're back and they're only just settling. Like they're literally only just settling now, like even sleep patterns and it's taken this kind of length of time for even Mikey's behavior and his confusion. And it's actually only now settling. And I feel it'll probably be nearly the summer holidays before everything's settled and then they'll be off again, you know? And uh, I suppose, Eleanor, what we would have noticed, and again, speaking from a lay person's point of view, there was a lot about autism in the media and it was about children with additional needs and the school closures and that was fairly uh, extensively covered and then there was uh, an RTE documentary which talked about portfolios on families being gathered around things and we had World Autism Day and you know to his credit um, Adam Harris and As I Am have been on he's amazing amazing yeah so um, despite that has any if any progress been made or do you think this has brought it up the agenda or do you think what's your view on the last number of months because the contention has it has least made it a more of a conversation than it ever was before but has that or do you imagine that that will translate into any degree of action well the only degree of action that i have seen happening is there is a new special school opening in cork and that was down again there was parents there with no places for their children. And I've just heard that there are, and there are some more 
units being opened in mainstream schools primary because it's very few in secondary as well so there's little things like that that are positive and that are happening but overall like the whole assistance of need uh, or the assistant assessment pardon me of need is so long you like I got my youngest guy privately diagnosed and he was two and I also went through the public system just alongside it and he was five before they diagnosed him so if I had waited for um, and you know early intervention is key here you get in early uh, if I'd waited he would have been five and I'm um, there's huge backlogs now and there were so many of OTs and SLTs who have been redeployed to various different COVID you know um COVID kind of centers and things like that. So I don't feel that we're in any better position apart from the opening of the schools, which again has been complete pressure, 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 pressure from parents, groups of parents getting together and literally fighting and literally, you know, refusing to not be heard. Like one of the big things for me that I feel is really, really important as well this year, particularly, is there is a, a, a July provision. Now, many years ago, it was done in our school and it was done and it's still being done in Dara's unit. Bless them. They still do it where the child goes to school in July. It's like a summer camp, but it's not mandatory for the schools to do it. So very few schools actually do the July provisions because of staffing issues and um, they can't get the numbers of staff to do it and bringing in external staff who aren't trained are used to our children can lead to health and safety concerns. Like there's 18,000 children in special ed, special ed and last year, 3,800 kids did it in school. So that's like 3,000, not even 4,000 out of 18,000. And yes, you will hear, we have this July provision. It's amazing. It's and so few can avail of it. There is the option then of having a tutor, a teacher has to be a qualified teacher who can come to your house for two hours a day and yet then for somebody like Mikey, it's really difficult to get somebody who's willing to come, who doesn't, you know, a teacher to work with him. It's probably somebody that he doesn't even know or and that they would understand his behaviours and get to know him. And, and I would not be able to leave here or, you know, it, it's a very it's very unworkable. And the people, a lot of people aren't getting it. So I feel that should be something that should be mandatory. I feel they should be in school in July children especially this year when they have missed so so very much it shouldn't be down to the schools to decide whether they run it or not because what's happening a lot is the units like Dara where he doesn't need it that badly now he loves it and it's brilliant for him and it's fantastic for me he'll get to do it and then Mikey won't get to do it so I have to go I can't I can't Mikey sees him going every day and he's looking at me as if to say why am I where am I not going you know it's so sad and it's so wrong and I think we're we really need to lobby as a parent group again to make that 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 should be mandatory and um, because that would make the summer holidays one month which is plenty for our children and especially when they've been off for so so very long but as you say is do I see any big improvement no do, the only one thing I see is maybe the, the few extra units and the special school. I don't see anything in services. I don't see anything extra in, in you know, the, the likes of the July provision being, you know, being more available and done in school where it's the most suitable place to do it. Um, so, yeah, no, 
overall, I'm not that optimistic. I feel these things flare up sometimes to get a bit of publicity. And like a couple of days or weeks later, then it's kind of, it loses momentum again. And it's always brought back up again when parents are in crisis. It'll be the news because they have no other option. They have to go to media because they're left they've knocked on all the doors and they've they've done everything that they can do and then it finally comes to the stage where you have to go there and say look help me please I need you know you have Mm. to almost be at a crisis before you'll get to the stage I don't see any more residential houses opening I don't see any more respite houses opening so overall to answer your question Coleman there's a little tiny bit I see with the school start, the schools opening, but that would be all I see. Other, otherwise, no. It's a bit like, uh, I suppose, what many people have said, there's no votes in disabilities. Do you know what I mean? No, it's not cool. It's not mm. a cool, it's not a cool subject. Mm. Um, it's not something that affects everybody, even though I'm sure everybody knows a child who's autistic or has one in their family. But, you know, we're largely invisible because we're not out that much with the kids because they're not really a lot of them able to go anywhere and they're voiceless. They don't have any voice. And uh, yeah, it's not like a big campaign. Like I remember you talking to a previous guest about like the Yes campaign and the the and, you know, the abortion different campaigns that were made very Everybody got involved. Everybody had a voice. Everybody had a passion about it. And it was very, you know, sort of important, um, whether it related to you or not. The disabilities, unfortunately, don't seem to have the same, the same, you know, level of interest from the public or from the politicians, sadly. And I remember Tom Clonan, his Tom, idea yes. was that yeah. uh, we'd have a pride march for disability. And yeah, I, really I loved idea. that. I love um, that. The, one of the things, Eleanor, that I suppose came through in your interview that last time was something that we got buckets of feedback about was your resilience and your perspective and your optimism. And it's interesting, if there was ever going to be a time period where I thought that was probably going to be stretched to its limit, it probably has been the last four months because I think since then there's definitely. Been a yeah, real... I think if, I think even since I've spoken to you in December, I was kind of going, it's nearly over. I I actually, whether it was, you know, I kind of felt things are opening up, everything's coming back to normal. It's it's nearly over. And then, you know, there was the little voice in the back of my head saying, Oh, now there could be a spike over Christmas, but they'll never close the special schools again. They've learned their lesson, they've seen the damage it's done, they're never gonna do that. And then suddenly I was going, Oh my God, here we are again. And uh, yeah, it was, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was, I've had some good days in it. Um, There was bits of fun here and there and um, it wasn't all doom and gloom. Um, But it certainly was a a time where I would say um, it was testing time for us all. Yeah, definitely test, definitely a testing time for us all. Um, yeah, and I'm just, as I say, um, settling now. I can feel like I'm detoxing a little bit, being all that they're back in school. It's like a, it's nearly like a detox of stress, kind of coming out a little bit. Um, it took a few, takes a while for your body to actually get out of that constantly being on alert what are they doing who's running water are they flooding somewhere is um anyone out in the road is somebody you know is that what is that breaking glass somewhere you know it's that kind of 
you're on that alert, you know, because you don't, Mike would have no sense of danger and no sense of awareness of things like flooding places. Or so I do have to keep my eye very firmly on him. And you can't even get into a good, decent sitting watching something on Netflix or because Mr. Tumble has to be on. And even then when I put it on my phone and start to keep rewinding back, missing bits so some dramatic episode occurs in the middle of it because there's no chocolate particular type of chocolate or something's gone missing <laughs> the easter eggs were great easter eggs like I, I i would be scared to tell you the number of easter eggs that were eaten in this house because they were just like great he loved them so they were a kind of a great <laughs> a great way of passing a little bit of time <laughs> With the iPad and the Easter egg. Oh, my God. No. And I suppose in many ways, Eleanor, and I can hear you know, the, the the way in which you approach the thing is to to kind of see a light in it. And I, and I like that. But um, I suppose the reality of living with autism, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I know you're nursing two black eyes. Um, oh, yes, I am. I am um, nursing two black eyes. And I actually laugh because I, I said to myself, it was World Autism Day and people were talking about autism and, and and there is all that glamorizing and um oh it's you know my child is special and they're so wonderful and my children are so special and so wonderful but like I actually said, said to myself right I'm going to um I got it uh, wasn't a deliberate kick but it was a kick um from Mike he's just getting so big I was trying to pull up his trousers and he cut me right between the bridge of the nose so I had two beautiful shiners I looked like a battered wife I was never so glad to have a mask the mask was say uh, the mask halfway going around halfway up my eyes um Everyone was coming in going, oh, my God, was it Mikey? And I remember I put a picture up on Facebook and my mother was nearly having a heart attack. What happened? I said, oh, I'm taking it down. People were ringing me. Are you all right? Oh, gee, were you attacked? What happened? And I was like, oh, no, people are not able for this. They actually are not able for the reality of looking at me with two black eyes. Um, and, and also um, it took two weeks. Like I was Googling, how long does it take for black eyes to go? But luckily I had nothing to do in the two weeks. So I wasn't as if I was going anywhere glamorous or doing anything glamorous. So I didn't, um, I was just going around with the arnica rubbing. The, I, we go through a lot of arnica here. <laughs> arnica is vitally important. The arnica is very, very important here. And um, say this yeah. podcast isn't sponsored by arnica. Just oh, <laughs> Arnica, I swear to God, I've eaten the Arnica, rubbed the Arnica onto the black eyes. Here I was every morning running in. Is it any better? No. Oh God. I fell. I don't know. It's hard to say to some stranger. My my son, 13-year-old son, kicked me in the nose. You know, but again, and then I, the whole I, I, autism of he's autism, he didn't really mean it. You know, um, but uh then the other fella kept going, Oh, Mikey kicked, he's like tells everybody everything. Mikey kicked Eleanor, Eleanor in the nose, and she has two black eyes, and she has to put loads of orange makeup on them. I'm like, right, keep telling everybody <laughs> <laughs> orange makeup. <laughs> But I, I suppose over the, the, the course of the podcast, we have tried to give a platform for people who are parents of additional needs. And I just want to take this opportunity to to shout out to all the parents out there who are struggling with this. And the reality is the black eyes. It is the exhaustion. It is the fatigue. It is the disappointment. It is the potential removal of hope um and i just think it has been a truly horrendous 12 months for everyone. yeah 
uh, yeah. in that. And um, just my thoughts are with you all. I know there's a lot of listeners here who would have children with autism and, and tune in uh, when they can. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's not good enough. Uh, it, it's far from it. But uh, I suppose I just want to say uh, you're in our thoughts, I suppose, for, from the point of view of that. And um, and no different to yourself, Eleanor, because again, unless you see the reality of it, there's no way that you can conceptualize what living with those challenges uh, is like. And I suppose the whole reality of it is, is it's the, the respite for me as well. And um, the break that you get to recharge when you have children that are gone in the morning and you can do the washing machine and you can hoover. Dara hates the noise of the hoover. And um, there's lots of little things like that are hair dryers. So all those little things that I could do that I can't do when they're here. And then when, when they come home, then I feel a little bit that, okay, I can, I can face this now. What's going to happen? I can, I can face this. Um, whereas when you have a 24 hours, your body and your mind don't get time to um, kind of to, to, to come down from that kind of constant alert, watching, waiting, um, someone shouting for somebody, another one shouting, you know, kind of way. So you do need, I do have really, really realized now that you actually do need to have that few hours away from the situation. It's so important. And it's so important, like even as I say, like the gyms aren't open, but the bit of walk now, I know the walking is a funny thing, but I actually find the walking really helpful with, I do it every morning now and drop the kids off with my friend. And we've a good uh, laugh and a chat and um, just to be out like that. Whereas with the two of them, I could never manage the two of them on a walk. So I'm kind of looking out at a gorgeous day going, I'd love to go for a walk, but I can't, you know, even the simple things like that, because there's nobody coming in to relieve me, to let me go, you know, in the evening times. So, yeah, uh, a lot of the, as I say, I would just give a big shout out to the group, as I said, the Open Our Special Schools Ireland group. I would give a big shout out to all the crew crew that with Miriam Kenny that were involved with them that got extra units opened and to the region in Cork who got that school open because it is you have to it's not like oh you do a little email or you do this is stalking I mean this is literally hounding stalking ringing everybody and it's a it's a few hours a day's work to get anywhere so I mean thank God for the groups that have come together and thank God for the fight that we still have, but you have no choice because you can either sit back and go, they're never going back to school. Oh my God. Or else you can go, right. I have to, and it it helps me to go, right. I'm going to do something about this. I have to speak about this. I have to do an article in the times. I have to say they need to go back to school. I have to push it. And then when I have a plan and a focus and something to work on, it gives me a, a bit of a re-energizing rather than sitting there going, oh, this is hopeless. You know, action for me is my way forward. I've always been like that. Even as I said in the previous podcast when Mike was small. And you know, it's so funny. I got so many strangers that reached out to me on social media saying, I have a child with autism and I tried all those things and about the acceptance of not being able to fix it and and um, people were like going, oh he I was at a healer oh, I was just, so many of us travel the same journey it's like scary the similarities and how many people had 
said, oh my God, I've listened to it and it's like me talking or it's like my story. So uh, um, for everybody who's doing that journey, you're not alone and um, we're all here and uh, we will keep fighting because that's the only option we have. Brilliant. Just to keep the energy up. <laughs> well, keep going is all I'll say. Keep uh, one, uh, uh, we just say one day at a time, sweet Jesus. <laughs> That's it. One, one day at a time. Keep going. Yeah, exactly, Colin. Well, thanks exactly. for that, Eleanor. I really appreciate you telling us that again. And, and I know it's been a tough few months for you. And it's it's lovely to have you back on, on the podcast Thank today. You. Updating us all. So we do have some listeners' questions in. Do you have any of them handy there? Where will we start? Yeah. I have the first question. I have two children, age 12 and 14. I hope to bring them to the UK to visit their grandmother. This will be their first visit since they lost their granddad over a year ago. The children seem to have come to terms with having lost their granddad. This will be the first time seeing their grandmother and the first time that they will be back in the house where the granddad would uh, would be obviously the void if I'm not being there. I am anxious how I should handle the children and what I can advise grandma in these circumstances. So they're 12 and 14. So obviously they've been aware of what's happened, but they haven't had, they've been removed from it, obviously been not being able to travel over. Yeah, again, a question I would get quite a lot. And I think this is a really... It's a fine balance. It's a tight rope to walk because with any loss, grief, bereavement, you're toying with the idea of acknowledging it, but not laboring it. So the, from the point of view of to what extent should we name the reality of what has happened? Do you know what I mean? In terms of, yeah. it, is it about, uh, and, and people are very conscious, I'm sure, not to upset granny who who's there and the children they're 12 and 14. So they have, a, they have some understanding of that concept. What I would say to this person is I'd be led by them in terms of what they want to do. And again, sometimes we, we fear talking about someone who has passed that it upsets the other person to have a conversation about it. Many people who I have dealt with professionally who have experienced grief, they value the conversations about the person who has passed. They they don't enjoy them, but they 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 enjoy the opportunity to be able to speak to somebody to given and even though it's setting to have the conversation when you are reminiscing, they tend to be reminiscing on good times. There's there's yeah. a, a community of grief that involves remembering somebody. It it involves getting upset again about it, and that's not picking at scabs or kind of re-agitating something that isn't there already. It's allowing an avenue of expression for that. So I wouldn't be afraid of the fact that Granny and the two boys may get upset together about the loss of Granddad. And I I would see that as something quite positive. That said, I, I don't think it should dominate the trip from the point of view of some children are open to those kind of conversations. Others would prefer not to kind of, as I say, labor the fact or trying to, and, and just don't feel comfortable with that dialogue. And I think that that's in, they're entitled to that as well. Grief is such a subjective process that each person will go through it in their own way. What I'd say is you give them a license to, to delve into it, to discuss it, to bring it up at whatever level they feel they want to. I wouldn't get terribly upset if 
granny and the two boys have a very heartfelt conversation and maybe all get upset remembering granddad because I don't yeah. necessarily feel that that's something we should avoid. And I certainly don't think it's anything that is unhealthy. I think it's actually quite the opposite. But again, acknowledging it, t- following their lead uh, and, you know, uh, and maybe giving a heads up to granny that this might be something that is talked about or brought up or and for her to 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 follow their lead too but many times in grief the biggest issue with bystanders when it comes to grief is we don't know how to be we don't know how to help we don't and it's not something that you can fix and for years as a therapist I struggled with people who were suffering from grief because it was an unfixable and I had to kind of move away from the fixing mode to the journeying mode where you just share the experience yeah. of grief with somebody. And, you know, uh, somebody shared something with me res- yesterday, but checking in and it was like, you know, are you sad? And the person said, yes. And they said, is there anything I can do? And they said, no. And then they said, but I'm glad you asked, you know, so yeah. this again, and I think that availability, leaving, giving license, giving permission to have the conversation and following your lead, I don't think you can over prep it. I don't think you can over plan it. I think it will evolve when Granny and the two boys get together. And I think it's just about managing it as it happens. And management doesn't mean closing it down. It just means allowing it to evolve at a level and supporting each other in it. So I would I would yeah. be more for creating a community of grief rather than uh, a possible kind of sterile avoidance issue. I don't think that's necessarily helpful. But these lads are 12 and 14. They'll lead it uh, and follow them. Yeah, Yeah. perfect. No problem at all. And best of luck to them with that whole thing. As I say, my ex-husband's mom passed there over the COVID uh, last few months. And it's just, it's very unreal kind of feeling she was a beautiful woman but it's a very unreal like she would be the grandmother of my children and a gorgeous gorgeous lady but it's just so unreal when somebody passes and you haven't seen you know you're not around you can't go to the funeral there's a very there's a real sense of unreality and I also had a a very close friend of mine um, who passed last year and I haven't had the, 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 the funeral or the regular process that you would have and sometimes I nearly forget that they're that they're not there, you know, that sort of way. It's like as if did it really happen? So I suppose that's kind of part of COVID, isn't it? I mean, normally these kids would have probably been over at the funeral and would have gone through the whole great, you know, the whole process of burial or cremation or whatever. Whereas now that's kind of gone and we're we're just hearing it from a distance. And, you know, it sometimes seems a bit surreal. Would that be normal? I think say. so. And I, I, th- I think we touched on this with with one of the guests, Benji Bennett, who talked about his, his little lad, Adam, who had passed. And he talked about the importance of that ceremonial yeah. ambience. Remember he said the ambience of support or the atmosphere of support in the church with just people's presence there that you could yeah. feel these people. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily about anything anyone said or did. It was just the presence of the omnipresence of of availability. And uh, so I think, yes, I think COVID has removed our opportunity for that. But also, as you say, removing the reality of that. And, and, uh, you know, the person who you've just passed to, again, I would echo a a beautiful and lovely woman, attended that 
online. It was such a surreal yeah, experience so to, surreal. Um, to be there, but not be there. And again, one of the, the greatest challenges COVID has, has thrown to us is our lack of connectivity. I do hope when this is all over that we will get a ceremonial opportunity to say goodbye personally to the people who yeah. we haven't had an opportunity to. I remember my friend Catherine, we were thinking, oh, we're in a year, you know, in the, a year, and it's a year now. And I'm thinking, oh, I, we need to do something. We need to have some sort of a memorial, you know, like be there, see physically before I'm ever going to believe that she's not around. You know, that kind of way, believe that she's gone, which is, it is, it, it seems to be part of when you actually see it, physically witness it and, and see what, you know, the whole funeral and the burial and whatever you know it's happened whereas I suppose it's the, the the unreality of it and I can imagine as say for somebody in a different country traveling over now post-COVID it will be very strange but I really and, hope and it I, goes I well for them. There's lots of things in this country we don't do well disability services being one of them but grief and death is something I think we do do well I think yeah as, you know in terms of our acknowledgement of it and our process and the support and the community and how there is a real coming together, you know, when yeah. the lads at the high vis jackets directing traffic into fields or the hundreds of people coming to the house or whatever it might be. Yeah. There's something, I think we do it well. Um, and I think you kind of, you give someone, you feel she got a good send off. She got the send off she deserved. You know, when you know somebody and love somebody, you feel they're nearly you know, deserved more. But as I say, that's um, that's COVID and that's that's death and that's what we're living with at the moment, sadly. But yeah, I, I can totally understand where they're coming from there and that's on that with that question. Yeah. Totally. And any other questions there? Yeah, this is an interesting one actually. Question two. I have an 11-year-old daughter who over lockdowns in COVID has developed a hatred for her brother's humming or singing. He is the only person in the house that she has any problem with. It started when he was singing and she would tell him to be quiet. He was too loud. But then he might start humming and she would start crying as the sound was driving her mad. It has actually become a major thing in our house as sometimes he might do it to annoy her other times we can clearly see he's just singing a song that he heard online innocently. I was thinking it might be something like misophonia. I don't know if pronouncing that properly common. Um, and was seriously thinking CBT therapy, but wondered what your thoughts were on it. I feel it has come out of anxiety with COVID and hyped by the fact that we are spending so much time together that she can't get away from him or from the sound. We have tried coping mechanisms where she would wear headphones or she would leave the room or he would go to the garden if you want to sing like that. Sorry to laugh. It's, it's actually I'm just thinking of my own two where one has to go upstairs to make noise. But yeah, he would go to the garden if you wanted to sing or something like that. But to be fair, it is affecting my son now as he is stressed because he can't do it and he loves singing. Her reaction is quite extreme and even a mere soft sound, she's right on his case. My five-year-old boy can sing as much as he wants and never seems to bother her. Any thoughts or strategies would be much appreciated. I don't know what okay, age the brother is, the, home, the singer is. but My um, guess is between the five-year-old and this girl herself. Yeah. Um, but the, the issue here is, is interesting. Misophonia is 
I mean, we all kind of have a little bits of that. It's like, you know, the, the nails on a blackboard or scraping yeah. on the plate. It kind of it, it, it creates a kind of a physical or emotional and visceral response uh, where you can get into panic or anxiety. It's a very unusual condition and one that I wouldn't say it's not, but my guess is it's not, especially if the other little brother is singing No Problem. In anything like this, I always say when you're interpreting behavior, the symptom is the signpost to the problem. It may not be the problem. So from the point of view of we all displace anxiety, stress onto something, we find a reason why uh, to, to give meaning to why we feel as ar- irritated or angry or frustrated. And my guess is in this dynamic, this brother's singing has become uh, a thing that has attached all the irateness and the frustration and the anger of her life is being attached to this. And it allows her to, to express to, uh, there's three reasons for behavior, to calm, to control and to communicate. And what she's doing here is doing all three of those things. She's, uh, well, she's not calming in many ways, but she's communicating and she's controlling the environment. So he can sing in her presence, which gives her a sense of some autonomy. But she's also communicating, all is not okay here. I'm not okay. I'm struggling with something. Uh, Unfortunately for the brother, I think it has probably attached to him. This may have started off as something quite benign and innocuous, but then it became a kind of a cultural issue within the family. The support here, I, I, I wouldn't be rushing to, to misophonia diagnosis or CBT, but I would be trying to explore what this girl struggles with outside of this. You know, as I say, this is a signpost to the problem. It may not be the problem. And to interpret and explore with her how other things are going in her life. My guess would be that this has gotten worse through lockdown, A, because yeah. of fever but because her stress levels and irate levels are are rising anyway and this is almost like if you can imagine it like it's the gauge it's the dial on the dashboard that's telling you where the problem is it's not the problem yes so yes when we look at our our petrol gauge and it's down into the red the 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 problem isn't with the with the gauge it's pointing it's giving you an indication that there's a problem in your petrol tank that you've no petrol left so um i would see this as the dial on the dashboard as opposed to the problem but definitely would explore it but i would you know children have gone through grief and loss and a frustration and you know i'm doing young people's episodes at the moment and we're just editing it there this morning and the stuff that they're going through you know again it's phenomenally disruptive and they don't have an avenue or a platform to get irate about it or get frustrated about it and oftentimes it finds its means through the most innocuous of channels and so from the point of view of my guess is this could be something to to do with the and maybe the brother's managing cop lockdown or covid uh, much better than she is and there's a jealousy around oh, she's she's say, look at him, he, he's as happy as larry going around singing and she's demented going oh it's annoying me <laughs> exactly and again i, I remember when, like i can remember having this feeling once when i had a flu and i was uh, it was years ago and i was lying on the couch and there was children playing outside my window. And I was like, how can they play when I feel so sick? Do you know what I mean? There's this I know. rational idea that, you know, how can you sing when I'm frustrated? Or how can you hum yeah. you know, when everything's going on? But it's about the everything going on, not the singing. That would be not, my... Yeah. So obviously the, the irritation or the, what you're saying there is the irritation or what anxiety or whatever that she has she's finding an outlet for that by saying he's that's what's annoying me whereas that's not really what's annoying her at all this is just a, a way of 
kind of demonstrating it or getting it out as an outlet. Is that right? Yeah, be and correct? again, you, you can see this in, in social media. We're getting much more irate about yes, things we normally nothing. wouldn't be. Um, yeah. And the absence of other things to occupy our time means that we get way more intensely reactive about people going to Tenerife to get their teeth done or something. And we get kind of highly anxious about these things or stressed about them because of an absence of anything else. And, it has and to it's not. Yeah, that. it's just a general irritation. Then, and then you have to have some outlet for it. So he's the nearest house <laughs> happily humming away. You're probably getting getting the target. So as I say, you would say, speak to the girl and see um, how she's coping generally rather than talking about the avoidance of humming, would you, Cole? Yeah, I'd chat about the stuff she's not talking about because yeah. that's probably where the problem is. Okay, perfect. That's fantastic. What can I see? Now I have another question here. Somebody's saying they're enjoying your podcast, finding them so useful and interesting. Okay, I am wondering if you have any tips or guidance around informing a child with special needs that they have dyslexia or DCD, developmental coordination disorders, another name for dyslexia as far as I'm aware. Um, Is there an optimum age to have an open conversation with him or does it depend on the child's personality and the child-parent relationship, which is positive? Um, to date I've been drip feeding him some information but I am now at the point in the journey whether I'm wondering are we holding back information from her the little girl I fear labels could be damaging in lots of respects but need to balance my own feelings against supporting her best interests she is aware of the differences and is perceptive but she can be anxious and then she just keep up the good work well done to your team so obviously a little girl it's a question I think you get quite a lot, isn't it, around diagnosis? I've heard this before about different diagnoses that children receive and about how to talk to them about it or or how to deal with the conversations around it. Yeah, and again, just to clarify, you, you'd say that the DCD is like dyslexia. It's dyspraxia. It's oh, dyspraxia. Pardon me. I'm sorry. Excuse um, me. Dyspraxia. So, yes. Sorry, so it is dyspraxia. an issue with, with coordination. Um, so she has DCD and dyslexia. Sorry. So she has dyspraxia and dyslexia. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So from, from the point of view of, no, it's, it's common. These are all sound, similar sounding so words. Sim- and they can yeah, yeah. Can mix them up. The, the, the issue here is around labeling, right? Now, I fully appreciate them as, Someone once said, you know, labels are for food, not for people, you know, and again, these things don't define us. And 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 ordinarily, we should think about people in terms of formulation rather than symptom. But there is some degree of understanding when we can name something coherently and get an understanding. Oh, that's why I struggle with that. This is why this is hard for me. And something like DCD dyspraxia. This isn't a child who's lazy or disorganized. It's a child who can't do it, right? So the, 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 the diagnosis says this isn't a child who's unwilling. This is a child who's unable. And the management of unwilling and unable are completely different things. You have to support the unable child and you have to direct the unwilling child. And so, you know, if I, um, I wear glasses and if I can't see the board, it's not because I'm not trying hard enough. It's because the board is not... A wiring issue of my eyes doesn't mean that I can do it. So berating me by saying I'm not trying hard enough is not going to help. You have to say you need glasses, right? And the glasses are going to help you to see the board better. 
And that's where labeling has a benefit. It's about saying to the child, this isn't your fault. The fact that you're the last kid to get ready, you know, get your books in order. And, and in many cases where you see this in, in primary school, it's maybe the, the children are, are function off a kind of a reward system per table. And it's to encourage teamwork, right? But the dyspraxic kid is the, the kid who's really struggling to get everything done in time. And so they let down the whole table because they okay. haven't got their pencil case and, and, and they feel kind of lousy about it. And there's a lot of pressure uh, around that. Whereas if there is an allowance made and said, look, that, the reason that you can't do that as quick as someone else is because like you're short-sighted, you can't do it. It's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's not because you are intellectually inferior. It's not because they're better. It's because this is happening. And we have to kind of adjust our expectations according to that. And teachers have to do that. And everyone else has to move around that. The flip side of that is, does it milk the diagnosis? So does the child say, well, I can't do that because of my DCD or I can't do that. And so they overham the diagnosis and it becomes something that they use as an opt-out as opposed to something that is assisting. Now that's a risk with everything. Do you know what I mean? If it's ADHD or ASD, we can kind of talk our way out of something and lean too heavily on a diagnosis and say, well, I can't do that because the diagnosis is supposed to inform you. It's not to define you. Do you know what I mean? And again, the issue here is, you know, if you have an additional need, then that's something that you need additional support with. And you only need support with that. You don't need support with everything else. And so it's about empowering your other abilities and your other facilities to be able to do that. But in this case, I would think, in the case of DCD, the self-esteem effect of this yeah. child struggling is greater than their risk of feeling labelled. And so in that situation, I would be informing them about what it is. And there's lots of really good books that you can get that explains dyspraxia to a child and why what they might struggle with and why. And again, that's about them not feeling not good enough. It makes them feel that they have to do something differently. And there's certain skill sets that they're going to be good at and other that they're going to struggle with. And I think the information is power. And I think from the point of view of the more knowledge about that and the more that they can understand it, the better. So I would be... Yeah, she is saying at the end here, the child is aware of the differences and she is perceptive and she can be anxious. So it's obviously something that she, she... is you know is is aware of and as obviously get you know causing some sort of sort of stress so perhaps in that case maybe the it be it might be like as you said uh, oh god that's why that makes sense that's you know it's not my fault you know it, and as you all said before and it's so true you can share as much as you want to share with others or you don't have to share or you know the choice to share or label you can get your supports or your thing without having to go around telling everybody either or public declarations of things that people are shy about it as well. 100%, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this question is another really interesting one. My daughter is experiencing panic attacks, the poor child. We have no appointment in CAMS for months, which would be, I think there seems to be always difficult to get an appointment with CAMS, but I can imagine at the moment with the COVID, it's huge any sort of mental health support seem to be very overbooked or overwhelmed can you help me to be in a position to help her manage these I don't understand what's the best thing I can I need to do thanks so much for your generosity giving your time and insights into this free resource it's been a lifesaver during the last year thank you so a little girl experiencing panic attacks Okay, and I'm glad this question has come up because it comes up quite a bit. 
The key to the panic attack is to understand it as best you can, right? And so the there's three dimensions to it. There's a biological dimension, a cognitive dimension, and a behavioral dimension. So the the biology is basically you try and understand what's happening within your body. So when you're anxious, you get sweaty, your heart beats faster, your pupils dilate. And again, that's a very understandable experience. It comes from our primitive nature of when we were in the jungle and, you know, you sweat because the bear can't grab you. Your eyes dilate because you can get better vision and your heart pumps your blood to your feet so that you can run faster away from the bear. So that's that's an understandable reaction when you're faced with a bear in the jungle. It's not an understandable reaction when it's half three on a Tuesday in religion class and you start to have these symptoms. So that's the biology. And it's like a part of our brain releases this adrenaline into our system and we start these physical symptoms start to happen. The next thing we do is we start to think about it, which is the cognitive thing. And that's where we go, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. Oh my God, I'm going to faint. Yeah. Oh my God. I've actually heard of people calling ambulances for panic attacks. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And it feels that way. So it It must be so horrible, yeah. So the more you think, catastrophize, and sensationalize the feeling, the more adrenaline is released from the brain. So basically what you're doing is you're adding fuel to this fire and adding more and more anxiety. So the more you think catastrophizing thoughts, the more that visceral feeling of anxiety happens. And the behavior is that you start to to kind of shiver and shake and you try and maybe look at, you're trying to be hypervigilant around your surroundings. You don't want to faint. You don't want to collapse. You don't want to be, you know, collapsing Katie or whatever it is and known for that for the rest of your life. And so, so everything creates this kind of panic attack and it, it, it full blown and it can be disabling. The key to managing panic attack is to understand what's happening. So once you feel that, and it's a misfire, you know, there's a misfire that is causing this kind of experience to happen that should be happening when you're faced with a bear in the jungle, but it's actually happening in religion class. So the first thing you do is don't add the thoughts to it. So you say, I know what this is. I've got this. This will pass and allow the panic to move through your system and then it'll just disappear. It's the thoughts that create the longevity to it. So the more you're thinking about it and the more you're panicking about it and the more you're stressed about it, the higher the panic's feeling gets. So the key here, the biology you can do very little about, but the cognition and the thoughts you can. So it's back to that very old reliable adage. I know what this is. This will pass. I've got this. Three things over and over again. And I've been able to help children to manage a panic attack within a minute and a half, you know, that it's just gone through the system and it's gone. And it is a skill that you have to practice. It's like physio, you know, you have to do the stretches. You have to be able to, you're not going to nail it first time. So in this situation, play this clip to your daughter with me explaining this as best I can. And, you know, talk her through, this is exactly what's happening. This is what makes it worse. This is what makes it better. And if she can manage those thoughts, if she can get on top of those cognitions, she will manage the escalation of the panic attack into something much less manageable. But understanding it is key. And those three sentences, this will pass. I know what this is and I've got this. And just keep getting through to that. And the more you manage it, the better you'll get at doing it. Um, these are debilitating, horrendously horrifying experience. If you get, if you've ever suffered from panic attack, it is utterly a discombobulating experience. But it is something that I've seen people manage and execute fantastically well. And it's very treatable. So from the point of view of sit down with your daughter, let's play this together. And and if I can take a chance to talk to your daughter and say, spot it when it happens. The biology is just a misfire. 
I know what this is. I've got this. This will pass. 45 seconds, a minute and a half, and you're out the other side. Okay. So it's just to know this is not, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm safe. I'm okay. It'll be over in a minute. I just have to wait it out. And then I suppose if you do that a couple of times, then you realize rather than, than thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm done. You know, this is that I'm going to die. I can imagine the sca- how scary it is. I've never actually had, I have had anxiety over the years, as I said before, when my son was diagnosed initially, but I've never actually had a panic attack. But I have heard of people um, feeling like they were actually having a heart attack and calling an ambulance and, you know, the terror and the fright if you're driving or something, if it happens. And and I would never be critical of someone who does that because that's exactly what it feels like, you know. Yeah. So the best to look at that, I hope that 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 helps you until you get your appointment in CAMS. and, And again, creating an understanding for your daughter of what's going on for her will help her. I think that was the last of the questions, was it, Eleanor? That was the last of all the questions. Yeah, there's nothing There's Brilliant. nothing else. I'm just checking through there. Yeah, no, that's them all. That's everybody. Well, Eleanor, I would just like to say thank you again for no your time problem. and your Not insights. And again, it's a fascinating conversation always when we have you on. And I hope people feel more up to date. And no doubt we'll get huge attraction from this episode and, and I will be sure to pass on all those well wishes and comments thanks. to you. And um, thanks to everybody for all the, it's it's amazing. I was actually quite overwhelmed with even strangers. Um it's lovely to hear back from people and I suppose the similarity of the journeys that we we are on and how you know when you hear somebody else talking about it you go, God, yeah, I, I I'm the same or I did this or I did that. And yeah, as I say, we're all in the same what is it they say we're all in the same sea or different boats or something like that but the COVID hopefully now I'm really hoping that the next time I talk to you if I'm back on again that we'll be all vaccinated and schools will be all open and let's think positive and hope for the best and uh, in the meantime we'll just keep going I'm sure we <laughs> might hope- be able to record it over a pint the next time uh, please God wouldn't it be good <laughs> but listen thank you so much Eleanor and if anyone has any questions you can get in touch with the show on askingforaparent at gmail.com or to the Twitter Instagram and Facebook pages but I just want to say thank you to Eleanor Birmingham for her time and insights today I want to thank you for listening and our next episode is going to be a fascinating it's our part two of our series of young people's voices and we will be having the particular emphasis on the secondary school group and it's a fascinating episode i really want you to tune in and listen to that and that will be out next week but until then i want to say thank you very much eleanor and no problem privilege to everyone out there thank you very much stay safe take care and bye for now that was my sister eleanor birmingham and i really want to thank eleanor for giving her her time and honesty into the conversation today. As a mum with additional needs, her time is precious and she's a very busy, busy person. She has a very long day in doing what she's doing. So I was really grateful for her to give the time to chat with us again today and to update us on how she's been doing. And I also wanted to say that we answered some really important questions. Those issues around dyspraxia, panic attack, and sibling rivalry are common issues that do arise and we've had those questions many many times over the podcast and i hope i've been able to kind of give you a kind of an insightful and detailed view on how to manage that should it ever cross your doorstep but again looking forward to next week where we'll be listening to our second installment of our young people's voices episode with a particular emphasis on those in secondary school and from the early edits this is going to be a fantastic episode some really honest 
and heartfelt interpretations on how the last 12 months have been for that group. So don't miss it. That's our Young People's Voices episode next week. And just thank you again for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for downloading. And your feedback has been so much appreciated. And we really do love when you do get in touch and tell us about things that you find helpful. It just does guide us as to what we can do to to contribute uh, to the resources available to parents out there in what is a really tricky time. So thanks for everything. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. But until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.